Now it's nice to be down with you again in Bally Halbert. Uh, he said I can finish before eight, so that's good to know, but have I gone to half eight and not mind either, I know that. Uh, I was speaking to a man who doesn't live far from here. I'll not mention his name for you, don't know him, but he's not a preacher by any means, but he was asked to take a service in a certain hall. So he reluctantly agreed, and he was talking to me about the experience, and he said, you know, Paul, as I was preaching, he said, I don't know what the audience thought, but he said, I got fed up listening to myself. <laughs> so when you get to that stage, you're not going well at all. There's certain things as we're preaching we have to say that might not be very agreeable to the palate. Uh, the Bible says, the wounds of a friend are something to be cherished. We don't come to hurt anybody or to unnecessarily annoy anyone, but we must speak the truth. My daughter was in just a week ago visiting, and uh, she's a school teacher. She told me the story about a lady who was getting dressed in the bedroom. Her husband was in the bedroom as well, and uh, she was looking in the mirror, and she said, oh, she said, I'm getting so fat. And then she said, and look at the wrinkles on my face. She said, I'm getting so old. She said, could you please say something to me to encourage me? He said, I could. He said, you've got 20-20 vision. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that was very encouraging or not. But listen, it's lovely to be here. And we trust indeed that you will be blessed. We're going to read some portions of God's word. They're all in First Peter. So if you've got your Bible, you can look these up with me. We're reading first of all in First Peter chapter 1. And we're reading from verse 10. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which they now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now just over one page to chapter 2. We're going to have a reading from each chapter. Chapter 2, we're reading from verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self Bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. 
For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Chapter 3, reading from verse 17. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Chapter 4, reading just one verse, the first verse. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves therefore with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. And finally in chapter 5, again, just the first verse. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. That's all we wish to read. We know that God will add his own blessing to the public reading of his precious word to all our hearts. Just for a moment, we're going to ask for God's help. Father, we pray indeed that you will bless us, that you will encourage your people who are here tonight, that you will build them up in their most holy faith. For those who may be here who as yet have never, ever trusted the Lord Jesus, we're praying that this might be the very night when they will come and put their trust in him alone for salvation. To this end, we seek your help and a sense of your holy presence with us, and we ask for it in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Some years ago, I can remember reading a book. It was simply entitled, Peter, Fisherman, Disciple, and apostle. And I can remember reading through the pages of that book and getting great blessing from it. That about sums up Peter's life, doesn't it? Peter, fisherman, then disciple, and then an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wrote two epistles for us. I have read from the chapters of his first epistle, and then he wrote a second epistle. They say that he was the source of Mark's gospel, that it was Mark who used Peter to get the information he needed, guided by the Holy Spirit, of course, to write his gospel. But here we are tonight, and we're looking at this wonderful man, Peter, and some of the things that he writes about in this wonderful epistle. It was written from Babylon. Some suggest that that was symbolic of Rome, but there's no reason why that should be so. Maybe he was really in Babylon. Maybe that's where it was written from on the Euphrates River. But he's writing to Jewish believers of the diaspora who had been scattered, and he's writing with a view 
to encourage them in their persecutions and in their tribulations. The little phrase that has really stuck in my mind is this. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. This epistle is written against a backdrop of persecution and tribulation of the saints of God. And as I said, Peter is writing this epistle to encourage them as they face great opposition. There are other sufferers that he mentions. He tells us that the saints can be called upon to suffer. If any man suffer as a Christian, he says, let him not be ashamed, for the spirit of glory and of grace resteth upon him. Sometimes, as Christians, we are called upon to suffer for the sake of Christ. Let me make this little inference. I believe this persecution that we know little of at this moment in Northern Ireland will increase over the coming years if the Lord will. Our teachers are being asked to teach things in school that Christian teachers cannot teach. My daughter showed me a book some weeks ago that she was being asked to teach her kids out of and she blatantly refused to do it. Such was the content of the book. Our doctors and nurses will eventually be asked to perform operations that to any Christian would be unethical and unspiritual, and they will have to refuse. Our government is passing laws that almost make it impossible for us to live the Christian life. I'm telling you this, dear friend. The days are coming upon us when we will be asked to take our stand for the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't want to suffer any more than you do. I don't want to have to face tribulation any more than you do, but I'm telling you, bad times are hurtling down the track towards us. And it is a worldwide problem. We shouldn't be surprised or dismayed. The Lord Jesus told us that in the last days, iniquity would abound. He told us that as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be before the coming of the Son of Man. Paul tells us in Thessalonians that there would be a great apostasy. What is apostasy? It's sinning against light. It's men who claim to be Christian and they're denying the truth of the word of God. These are the days in which we are living. And before long, let me tell you young people, 
you will be called to take your stand for the Lord Jesus. Peter tells us that Christians, saints, will suffer. They were suffering in his day. Down through the centuries, they have suffered. I could speak at length of men like Tyndale, of Cromner, of Latimer, of Ridley, and hundreds of other men and women who laid their life down for their faith in Christ. Eleven out of the twelve apostles died martyrs' deaths. Peter, according to tradition, was crucified upside down at his own request. And he gave his life for the cause of the gospel. Peter tells us the saints can be called upon to suffer. But then he tells us of another sufferer. He tells us that sinners will suffer. You know that the saints will suffer is understandable because the Lord Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they hate at me, they will hate you. And the more like him we become, the more the world will hate us. Make no mistake about that. But then he tells us that sinners will suffer. He talks about Judgment beginning at the house of God. He says of the righteous scarcely be saved. In other words, if it's so difficult for Christians to eventually reach their eternal home because of the persecutions they have to face, he says, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And he asks this question. What will the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God. What will the ultimate end be? Let me put you in the picture tonight. If you die unsaved, if you never choose to trust Christ as your Savior and you die without Him, there is absolutely no hope for you. None. Not a ray of light. You will be lost eternally. In that awful lake of fire. Do you know that lake was never prepared for human beings at all? It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But if you refuse the provision that God has made for sinners, you leave God with no other option. And you will find yourself confined in that awful lake that burns with fire and brimstone. There is no escape. There are no second chances. You are irretrievably lost forever. That's inevitable that sinners will suffer. But here's something that's unfathomable. He tells us of a third sufferer. He says, Christ also hath once suffered. This is unfathomable. Why would the Savior have to suffer? The one who was sinless, who was perfect, the holy, harmless, undefiled Son of the living God. Why would he have to suffer? 
That's what these chapters are all about. He mentions the sufferings of Christ in five different ways. I want to leave those with you tonight. I trust there will be a help to you and a blessing. First of all, in chapter 1, Peter tells us that the sufferings of Christ were prophesied. This is amazing. You know, much was foretold about the Lord Jesus. Moses writing in Genesis, for he wrote the first five books, the Pentateuch, he tells us that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Imagine, way back in Genesis, in Moses' day, three and a half thousand years ago, Moses writes that the Lord Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah 1,500 years before his birth. Then, of course, we have Jeremiah. He tells us that he would be of the lineage of David. So he was of the kingly line. So much that the prophets have foretold. But concerning the sufferings of Christ, look at all those prophecies that we have concerning his sufferings. If I had nothing else, only these prophetic statements to convince me, I would be totally convinced about the reliability of Scripture. How could men know hundreds of years ago so definitely about events that would transpire centuries later? How could they know? Only one way. They had to be inspired by the Spirit of God. David wrote, They pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm 22. David's hands and feet were never pierced. I'm sure when he wrote that, he must have looked at the writing and wondered what he was writing about. But he was writing about the Lord Jesus, who was nailed alive to the cross by hands and feet. His sufferings were prophesied. It was prophesied in the Psalms that he would be spit upon. The psalmist also prophesied, they plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. It was prophesied he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jeremiah prophesied, Zechariah prophesied that. All these prophetic scriptures telling us of events that would transpire in the life of the Lord Jesus as far as his sufferings were concerned, centuries before they took place, as I have said, if I had nothing else, only those prophetic scriptures, I would be totally convinced about the reliability of this book that lies open before me. These men, moved by the Spirit of God, were writing about things they couldn't fully understand. Peter says they weren't writing for themselves. They were writing for us. We're looking back now. We can see their prophecies being fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus. I suppose one of the greatest pictures in the Old Testament, one of the greatest types of all the types of the Lord Jesus is Joseph. The beloved son of his father sent on a mission to his brethren. Betrayed 
and sold in the pit and the prison, all that before he eventually came to the palace and then was worshipped by Gentiles and Jews alike. But what a wonderful picture of our Lord Jesus, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The Jewish nation were just looking for the glory. The two on the way to Emmaus, they said to the Lord Jesus in Luke 24, we thought that it was you who would redeem Israel. They thought he was the one who had come to emancipate them from Roman bondage and the Roman yoke, just as Moses had down in Egypt, delivered Israel from the Egyptian slavery. That's what they were looking for. But they didn't understand that he was a suffering Messiah. The sufferings of Christ, the Lord Jesus said to the more foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written concerning me. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then to have entered into his glory? Well, the prophets have told about the glory. He will bear the glory, we're told. Daniel writes about him coming as the ancient of days to set up his kingdom on earth. All of that has been prophecy, and it will happen. But Peter is taken up here with the sufferings of Christ. There's a little statement here in chapter 1. I want to spend a minute on it. It has been a blessing to me during the week. You know, I'm going to tell you this. No preacher, are you listening? There's no preacher can ever hope to reach the hearts of his hearers if what he's preaching on has not reached his own heart. I was thinking about this meeting during the week and my heart was really touched. As I thought about this little statement, such things angels desire to look into. Do you know there was no salvation made for angels? He spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down. There was no savior for them, no hope for them. Those great beings that God had created when they sinned, they were lost. And angels desire to look into these things. In the Ark of the Covenant, there were those two angelic beings with outstretched wings on their heads looking down on that mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. It's a wonderful picture of what we have here in First Peter chapter 1. They're looking into these things. They can't understand it. Why would God send his eternal son to die for you? Why would he do it? Or me? They can't get their heads around it. No salvation was designed for them. And yet for fallen man who had rebelled in the sight of God, he gave the very best that heaven had so that you and I could be saved for all eternity. I better move on or I'll definitely be happy yet. Chapter 2. His sufferings were exemplary. He has left us an example. 
He suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Now, I've already told you, persecution, reproach, tribulation is coming our way through the laws that are being passed in our country, through the sinful influences that are going on all around us. We're going to find ourselves a very small minority. Let me tell you this. What do we do? We act like he acted. He has left us an example that we should follow his steps. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Isn't that amazing? Tell me. If you had been hanging on the cross and your hands had been nailed by iron spikes, and at your fingertips there was omnipotent power. And you could have destroyed every person standing around you, persecuting you with one word. What would you have done? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Sometimes to take your stand doesn't mean you have to take up arms, doesn't mean you have to fight. Sometimes your very silence and your stoicism and the fact that you're just there is enough to repel your persecutors. Many have laid down their lives just like the Lord Jesus Though we'll see in a moment, his death is different to all others. But many have left down their lives. It says that he never spoke a word, led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb. He opened not his mouth. Sometimes we have to speak out, but our words are to be seasoned with salt, or to be gracious, or to be loving. We're to be forgiving, just like our gracious master. What an example he has left us to follow his steps. Chapter 3. His sufferings were not only prophesied, chapter 1. They were not only exemplary, chapter 2. Chapter 3, they were substitutionary. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just one for us the unjust that he might bring us to God. Christ wasn't suffering for his own sins. He had none to suffer for. He was suffering the just one for us, the unjust ones. Have you ever sat down for a moment to think about that? The hymn writer wrote, My sin, O the bliss, of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Here's how Peter puts it in chapter 2. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. 
I have given you this example before, but it's so telling. The offerer in the Old Testament had to bring his offering, an innocent little lamb. There it was, fleecy and white. It had done absolutely nothing wrong. And the offerer comes, and he puts his hand on the head of the innocent little lamb. It's as if he's transferring all his guilt and all his sin onto the head of the innocent victim. And in a moment, that lamb dies, shedding its blood in the stead of the offerer. That's what happened at Calvary. The Lord Jesus took it upon himself to become our substitute. God could not overlook our sin. He couldn't brush it underneath the carpet. He had to deal with it righteously. And the only way he could do that was to find a suitable substitute who could take our place. No angel, no archangel, no cherubim, no seraphim, no matter how high and lofty they may have been, could ever have done it. He alone, the Lord Jesus, one of the Godhead, was the only person who was capable of dying for us and bearing our sin. And that's exactly what transpired on Calvary. He suffered. The just one. Imagine shedding his blood and suffering for a worm like me. Imagine. Because he loved us so much. He gave himself up to the death of the cross. All I had to do to be saved. All I had to do to be forgiven. Was to believe that. Was to drink that in. Was to trust him as my personal saviour. His sufferings are prophesied. His sufferings are exemplary. His sufferings are substitutionary. His sufferings in chapter 4 are real. We haven't time to get into all this tonight. But there were those who would have been saying, well, he was the son of God. He didn't feel pain like we feel it. We're going through physical anguish here. He probably didn't feel a thing. No, says Peter. Wrong. He suffered for us in the flesh. He felt every pain more acutely than we could ever do in his sinless body. He felt every twinge. Imagine how he must have felt in the darkness of Calvary when he was exposed to human guilt and sin and he was made a sin offering for us. How must he have felt? His holy being must have recoiled in absolute horror. God abandoned him and laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He felt it all, every pain, every pang, as he died for us. Then Peter says in chapter 5, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I don't know how he got to the cross. He had denied the Lord Jesus three times. How guilty he must have felt even though he had been restored. 
later, but he made his way to Calvary and stood probably in the shadows and he watched as the Savior hung in all untold agonies on that tree. Can I tell you this? I have been there over 50 years ago. I got to that same tree and I stood in absolute awe and wonder as it dawned on me for the first time that man is taking my place. He's bearing my sin. He's providing eternal salvation for me through his death. I had a man work for me many years ago. His name was Ivan. Ivan died when he was in his mid-40s. He was a very good worker, a very good friend, but he wasn't saved. I spoke to Ivan during his working life with me many times about salvation. He even went to meetings with me. He never spoke disparagingly about the gospel, but he had just no interest whatsoever. And one day he came into work and he said to me, he said, Paul, I have got bad news. He said, they have found out I have got cancer. And he said, on Thursday, this was a Monday, on Thursday, I have to go for scan. And he said, they'll be able to give me a quick result. So on Thursday, Sandra and I were coming up through Cookstown, and I can remember stopping the car, and I rung Ivan, and I said, Ivan, tell me, how did things go? I knew that the tests were over. He started to cry on the phone. He said, Paul, it's terrible. He said, they have told me I have only months to live. Months. As best I could, I told him again of the Savior. I said, Ivan, you need him now. If you ever needed him before, you need him now. I said, you've got to trust him, Ivan. You've got to trust him now. And he listened through his sobs. The next morning I went away to work. Sandra was at home. She told me the phone rung. It was Ivan. He said, can I speak to Paul? She said, Ivan, he's not here. He's gone to work. He said, when he comes in, will you tell him something? He said, just this morning, as the sun started to rise and come into my bedroom, he said, you tell him. For the first time in my life, it dawned on me that although I believed he had died for the world, this morning, I saw him. She said, I saw him dying for me. That's it. I even got gloriously saved and he lived six months to prove that he was a genuine Christian. I have been there. Have you been there? Listen, I've been to the altar. I've witnessed the lamb burnt holy to ashes for me. I've seen the sweet fragrance ascending on high. Accepted, O oh Father.
by thee. If you haven't been to that cross, then you need to make a visit there. By faith, you've got to stand with Peter and be a witness of those sufferings. And I trust the Holy Spirit will dawn it upon your heart that every pain and pang that he endured was for you and for your salvation. If you're not saved, what are you waiting for? These are awful days we're in. Don't leave it a moment longer. God in long-suffering mercy has stretched out, as it were, this day of grace to this present juncture, but it's coming to a close. The day of mercy will end. The door will be shut. And if you're outside, you'll be lost. That's not what God wants. He's not willing that any should perish. Why not come tonight if you're not saved? And take Jesus to be your personal saviour. I trust you will, for his name's sake. Paul, you're going to sing a hymn.